Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below. Chapter 26 of The Marrow of Tradition This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White The Marrow of Tradition by Charles Waddell Chestnut Chapter 26 The Discomfort of Ellis Mr. Ellis was vaguely uncomfortable. In the first excitement following the discovery of the crime, he had given his bit of evidence and had shared the universal indignation against the murderer. When public feeling took definite shape in the intention to lynch the prisoner, Ellis felt a sudden sense of responsibility growing upon himself. When he learned, an hour later, that it was proposed to burn the Negro, his part in the affair assumed a still graver aspect, for his had been the final word to fix the prisoner's guilt. Ellis did not believe in lynch law. He had argued against it more than once in private conversation, and had written several editorials against the practice while in charge of the Morning Chronicle during Major Carteret's absence. A young man, however, and merely representing another, he had not set up as a reformer taking rather the view that this summary method of punishing crime with all its possibilities of error to say nothing of the resulting disrespect of the law and contempt for the time-honored methods of establishing guilt was a mere temporary symptom of the unrest caused by the unsettled relations of the two races at the south there had never before been any special need for any vigorous opposition to lynch law so far as the community was concerned for there had not been a lynching in Wellington since Ellis had come there, eight years before, from a smaller town, to seek a place for himself in the world of action. Twenty years before, indeed, there had been wild doings, during the brief Ku Klux outbreak. But that was before Ellis's time, or at least when he was but a child. He had come of a Quaker family, the modified Quakers of the South and while sharing in a general way the southern prejudice against the negro his prejudices had been tempered by the peaceful tenets of his father's sect his father had been a whig and a non-slaveholder and while he had gone with the south in the civil war so far as a man of peace could go he had not done so for love of slavery as the day wore on Ellis's personal responsibility for the intended auto de fe bore more heavily upon him. Suppose he had been wrong. He had seen the accused Negro. He had recognized him by his clothes, his whiskers, his spectacles, and his walk. But he had also seen another man, who resembled Sandy so closely, that but for the difference in their clothes, he was forced to acknowledge he could not have told them apart. Had he not seen the first man, he would have sworn with even greater confidence that the second was Sandy. There had been, he recalled, about one of the men, 
he had not been then nor was he now able to tell which something vaguely familiar and yet seemingly discordant to whichever the two it was or as it seemed to him now to any man of that race his mind reverted to the place where he had last seen sandy and then a sudden wave of illumination swept over him and filled him with a thrill of horror the cakewalk the dancing the speech they were not sandy's at all nor any negroes it was a white man who had stood in the light of the street lamp so that the casual passer-by might see and recognize in him old mr delamere's servant the scheme was a dastardly one and worthy of a heart that was something worse than weak and vicious ellis resolved that the negro should not if he could prevent it die for another's crime but what proof had he himself to offer in support of his theory then again if he denounced tom delamere as the murderer it would involve in all probability the destruction of his own hopes with regard to clara of course she could not marry delamere after the disclosure the disgraceful episode at the club would have been enough to make that reasonably certain it had put a nail in delamere's coffin but this crime had driven it into the head and clenched it on the other hand would miss pemberton ever speak again to the man who had been the instrument of bringing disgrace upon the family spies detectives police officers may be useful citizens but they are rarely pleasant company for other people we fee the executioner but we do not touch his bloody hand we might feel a certain tragic admiration for brutus condemning his sons to death but we would scarcely invite brutus to dinner after the event it would harrow our feelings too much perhaps thought ellis there might be a way out of the dilemma it might be possible to save this innocent negro without for the time being involving delamere he believed that murder will out but it need not be through his initiative he determined to go to the jail and interview the prisoner who might give such an account of himself as would establish his innocence beyond a doubt if so ellis would exert himself to stem the tide of popular fury if as a last resort he could save sandy only by denouncing delamere he would do his duty let it cost him what it might the gravity of his errand was not lessened by what he saw and heard on the way to the jail the anger of the people was at a white heat a white woman had been assaulted and murdered by a brutal negro neither advanced age nor high social standing had been able to protect her from the ferocity of a black savage her sex which should have been her shield and buckler had made her an easy mark for the villainy of a black brute to take the time to try him would be a criminal waste of public money to hang him would be too slight a punishment for so dastardly a crime an example must be made already the preparations were under way for the impending execution a t-rail from the railroad yard had been procured and men were burying it in the square before the jail others were bringing chains and a load of pine wood was piled in convenient proximity some enterprising individual had begun the erection of seats from which for a pecuniary consideration the spectacle might be the more easily and comfortably viewed ellis was stopped once or twice by persons of his acquaintance 
from one he learned that the railroads would run excursions from the neighboring towns in order to bring spectators to the scene from another that the burning was to take place early in the evening so that the children might not be kept up beyond their usual bedtime in one group that he passed he heard several young men discussing the question of which portions of the negro's body they would prefer for souvenirs ellis shuddered and hastened forward whatever was to be done must be done quickly or it would be too late he saw that already it would require a strong case in favor of the accused to overcome the popular verdict going up the steps of the jail he met mr delamere who was just coming out after a fruitless interview with sandy mr ellis said the old gentleman who seemed greatly agitated this is monstrous it is indeed sir returned the younger man i mean to stop it if i can the negro did not kill mrs ochiltree mr delamere looked at ellis keenly and as ellis recalled afterwards there was death in his eyes unable to draw a syllable from sandy he had found his servant's silence more eloquent than words ellis felt a presentiment that this affair however it might terminate would be fatal to this fine old man whom the city could ill spare in spite of his age and infirmities mr ellis asked mr delamere in a voice which trembled with ill-suppressed emotion do you know who killed her ellis felt a surging pity for his old friend but every step that he had taken toward the jail had confirmed and strengthened his own resolution that this contemplated crime which he dimly felt to be far more atrocious than that of which sandy was accused in that it involved a whole community rather than one vicious man should be stopped at any cost deplorable enough had the negro been guilty it became in view of his certain innocence an unspeakable horror which for all time would cover the city with infamy mr delamere he replied looking the elder man squarely in the eyes i think i do and i am very sorry and who was it mr ellis he put the question hopelessly as though the answer were a foregone conclusion i do not wish to say at present replied ellis with a remorseful pang unless it becomes absolutely necessary to save the negro's life accusations are dangerous as this case proves unless the proof be certain for a moment it seemed as though mr delamere would collapse upon the spot rallying almost instantly however he took the arm which ellis involuntarily offered and said with an effort mr ellis you are a gentleman whom it is an honor to know if you have time i wish you would go with me to my house i can hardly trust myself alone and thence to the chronicle office this thing shall be stopped and you will help me stop it it required but a few minutes to cover the half mile that lay between the prison and mr delamere's residence end of chapter twenty six Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista. Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces The Marrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. 
The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut, and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below.